owe me very much. You don't, be assured. Doesn't sound like he owes me very much the way he used to treat me when he stayed with us at our home. One time he was fixing an electric switch, and he, uh, of course, within my hearing, he said to Mrs. Sam, doesn't Neil ever do anything like this? She said, no, he's more on the spiritual side. <laughs> I want to forgive you for that, win, and I'll only tell it once or twice more, and then I'm through. <laughs> I asked uh, Martha Rissemeyer this morning, Martha, how long have I been coming to Gardenville Church? She hit it right on the head. She said, 28 years. I know it's right because she was two years old then and married to a young man in the armed forces. They called him Slim. He doesn't Slim anymore, but he's still Slim to us. We love the Richtermeyers, and we've had a very blessed time with them, and thank the Lord for them, and for you all. I remember when this was the church. Remember? And that, Mrs. Sam and I one time, this is what traveling preachers have to do sometimes, one time, Mr. Sam and I slept on two army cots on the bitterest February day. And the dear brother who put us there, I guess he thought blankets were enough, but he didn't realize that under us was just a piece of canvas. And we nearly froze that night. But we had a good time anyway. And I just want to say that under our brother Thurman's leadership, how this church has been blessed. Thank the Lord for him and for his dear wife, and for you all, it's every time we come, as Brother Johnson said to the men here uh, today or yesterday, every time we come, it seems something fixed, something's a little nicer, something's been improved, and that's a good sign. Now, I have been asked to speak on Roman Catholicism, and I'm very happy to do it. I just want to say this first. I don't know you all. I know most of you just about here, but I don't know you all. And uh, should there be any Roman Catholics here, I hope you'll understand that what I say is about Roman Catholicism, about the teachings of Rome, and where we feel they are not scriptural. There's not a feeling in my heart against any Roman Catholic, be sure of that. And I have some very good Roman Catholic friends. I'm going to tell you about one of them in a moment. And I hope you'll be my friend, too. If there's anything you don't agree with me on, just shake hands with me later and say, I sure didn't agree with you, and then we'll be friends. But uh, we had a call at Berean Bible Society, oh, two years ago, from the International Students Incorporated. They said we have a priest here. He's been 13 years a priest in Rome, and has been sent to America by the church at Rome, though he's paid out of Germany, and he's well able to take care of himself financially. But he came in and he said, I just feel as though I've been in a prison. All I know is Roman Catholic theology and Roman Catholic methods and the Roman Catholic church, and I don't even know how the other half of the world lives. Could you possibly find me some place where I could have a little vacation with some Protestant Christians? And uh, so that I get to understand them a little better. And uh, I have my own car. I'm well paid. I don't have to worry. They don't have to worry financially. I'll take care of myself. If it's a farm and they want me to do some work there, I'll be very happy to do it. And uh, so they called us up and... I said, well, that's a big order so fast, but give me a day. I'll certainly try hard to get something. I've forgotten all the details, but anyway, through contact, we found a Christian home, farmers, in central Illinois that we suggested he go to. We'd call them up, and they'd said, well, we're glad to have him. Just send him. We'll make him right at home, and we hope he'll enjoy himself. So he went there for two weeks, and that dear man was in heaven. <laughs> he never had enjoyed everything, anything so much in his whole life. These people read the scriptures at the evening meal. 
They had devotions and a little Bible before they went to bed. They took them to their church and to their church service and their prayer meeting. And he was absolutely thrilled. And he came back. I hadn't seen him yet. And he came to the Berean Bible Society. He wanted to thank me for my part in it. And that very day, we hit it off. We got to be real good friends. Ted Wesolowski. And he said, don't call me Reverend, don't call me Father, just call me Ted, will you? And he called me, I said, I'll do it if you'll call me C.R. So he called me C.R. and I called him Ted. And we agreed that we were going to get together again because there were many things we would like to discuss about where Catholicism and scriptural Protestantism disagree. And he seemed to be as anxious as I was. So we agreed... He often had to make little trips in his car, and so did I, especially to Milwaukee at that time. And I said, when I have to go to Milwaukee, I'll call you, see if you want to ride with me, and we can talk scripture. And when you go somewhere, call me, and, and I'll see if I can go with you, and we'll try to spend as much of a day as we can, and each time we agreed, each time we would discuss one subject, like Mariolatry, or the Mass, or Papacy, or whatever. And uh, so that we agreed on. But there's another basic agreement we had to come to. You know the vicious cycle, we call it, about the Word of God in Romanism. The Roman Church says the Church is the final authority in everything pertaining to doctrine and conduct. The final authority, the last word, the Church. And we Protestant Christians say, who says that? They say, well, the Bible says. We say, who says the Bible says that? Well, the church says it, and the church is the only authorized interpreter of Scripture. So there you are back, you've gone the cycle, you see, and Rome is still the one, uh, the only authority in matters doctrinal and spiritual and, and, uh, and moral. So we agreed on this. We both agreed, he and I, that the 66 books in this Bible here is the Word of God. They include the Apocrypha, and they, they uh, include much of tradition, and say that's inspired, too. Their doctrine on inspiration is not as strong, certainly, and I believe not as clear as our doctrine in this church would be on the inspiration of the Scripture. So he agreed heartily. He said he hadn't, very frankly confessed, he hadn't studied the Bible enough anyway. And that would be a good chance to get into the Bible a little. So we began. Our first subject was the papacy. I called him, I said, I have to go to Milwaukee. How about riding with me? He said, I'd love it. I said, what will we discuss? Well, he said, I would rather have you choose the subject because you're the one that protests against us, you see, against the doctrines of the church. I said, fine. How about the papacy? Good, he said, because I'm sure against that. That was an eye-opener. We got into the car and we began to talk. Now, I'll tell you what I have done for this service. I didn't do it with him because I, only, I didn't have to look for proof. These were things he agreed were so. But I have gotten the later uh, Catholic dictionary. I believe there are two. I've gotten the later one. And here's what I read on page 389 about the papacy. The Pope, as Bishop of Rome, is successor to St. Peter, and therefore the visible head of the Church on earth, the vice-regent of Christ, and the supreme ruler over all Christians. And then you go on into the detail of what the Pope has the authority to do, and it's just about everything. He can tell you where to go and what to do and when to do it and how to do it and how much to pay and so on. He can tell you just about everything because he is the supreme head over it all. And you say, where do you get that from? Turn with me, please, to Mark, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. 
Remember, the Lord had asked his apostles, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14, And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, But whom say ye that I am? Now you know that Peter uh, was generally outspoken. He had the answer right now, even if it was wrong. But this is one time when I want to take my hat off to Peter. He didn't say, I think, or it's my conclusion, or I'm sure of this. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now you know what the word Christ means. The word Christ, the Old Testament, the, the Greek is Mashiach, Messiah. It means the anointed one. It could refer to prophet or priest, but most generally to king. And you know, he was proclaimed as the king of Israel. So Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the, the anointed one, the king, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. We'll stop right there. This is their strong, strong verse in that regard. I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and on this rock will I build my church. Now we have many scriptures that would uh, make it clear, it seems to me, that he did not mean upon you. I think the grammar, grammar then would have been different. Thou art Peter, and on thee I will build my church. But Peter had just said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for that the Lord said, You're a rock. On this I will build my church. On the testimony that he gave of Christ. And I think this is very clear as to the church that he was building at that time. Because eight, I, I believe it's eight, could be six, six or eight times. In John alone, you have him presented as the Christ the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the King of Israel, the Son of God. Look to just one verse, please, John 20 and verse 31. John 20 and verse 31. A very much misused verse. You know how often this has been used. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And I heard just the other day over uh, quite a large religious radio station in Chicago, I will not name because you all know it anyway, but uh, I heard over this station, the Bible says that it was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's not so. Look at the verse before, verse 30. Many other signs, miracles did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs, these miraculous demonstrations are written, they're recorded, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Anointed One, the Son of God. Now that's how the twelve apostles preached him. That's how Christ offered, or rather, proclaimed his own royal rights in his own position in all of this. And that's how Peter at Pentecost presented him and said, if you'll repent, God will send Jesus. And the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So that's the way that Christ was preached then. That's the foundation on which the twelve built, you see. It had to begin with Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. But you remember what they did with that proclamation and then that offer of the kingdom. After Christ and his twelve had proclaimed it, they crucified him. When he was raised from the dead, and that was shown by many infallible proofs, they still wouldn't accept him. They said, we want uh, we do not want this man to reign over us, and they would not have Christ or his kingdom. 
Now, beloved, it was then, and here's where rightly dividing the word of truth comes in. Peter had preached him as the Messiah, the King, the Son of the living God. That's how Peter had preached him. And that's how the other eleven apostles had preached him. But they had rejected him as their king. They had rejected the kingdom. And now God raised up another apostle. He took Saul of Tarsus, the flaming leader of the rebellion against Christ, the one who says, you know that I made havoc of the church. I laid it waste. I was exceedingly mad against them. I pursued them even unto distant cities. I dragged them to court, both men and women. And when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. God saved this man. He didn't crush him. He saved him and made him the great apostle of grace. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Somebody says, No, I feel I'm the chief of sinners, but I have news for you. You're not. The Word of God says, and this is not, <coughs> pardon me, this is not merely Paul's word to Timothy. It is God's word to us. He's the chief of sinners. And he says, how be it, thank you, you're a kind friend, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy. Now get this, not this, but this. Thank you. Now he says, Christ Jesus, get this, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it for this cause I obtained mercy. Why was it that Paul, the chief of sinners, was saved? Now go on. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them that should hereafter believe unto life everlasting. Isn't that beautiful? Here we come from that dispensation where God was telling them through Christ, through John the Baptist, through the Twelve, how they should live and what they should do, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what they're still trying to preach today, so fruitlessly. They can't make a nice word out of this. God showed when they crucified Christ and then stood by that awful deed. God showed that this is a doomed human race, a doomed world, but he sent the chief of sinners to say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I know it, I'm the chief of sinners, that's why he saved me. So we go from Peter to another apostle, Paul. Not Peter's successor, Peter's still living, Peter's still preaching. Look here in Galatians 2, please. Galatians 2. Now, I might talk about my priest friend for just a moment. He had said, I'm against the papacy, and I think it's going. He says, rebellion in the Catholic Church, and that Pope is going. He's most of their only big politicians, this is his word, not mine now. He's the most of their only big politicians anyway, trying to make it the biggest thing on earth. But he says, they're going to go, they're going to go. But I was able, thank God, to show him from Scripture what the truth of the matter is. Not a matter of one rebelling against another and putting him out. Listen to this. Galatians 2, please. Uh, verse 2. <clears throat> he says in verse 1, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, verse 2. And I went up by revelation. I was sent up. God, Christ, told me to go to Jerusalem and communicated unto them. I communicated to them, the leaders of Jerusalem, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Now, doesn't the phraseology itself indicate that this is a different gospel? Doesn't the phraseology itself indicate that now there's a change? I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But do you know, in spite of that clear phraseology, people will yet say, well, he just went up to check with them, make sure it was the same. That's what the Roman Church said. Wait a minute, let's read on. But privately, to those who are of reputation, 
lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Does that sound as though he was just checking up to make sure it was the same? Would he then have to go privately to the leaders to try to persuade them of it? Of course not. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, in conference, they added nothing to me. I, was a, I knew all about the prophetic program. I was a godly Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the son of a Pharisee. I, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I knew what they did about the Old Testament scriptures. They added nothing to me. But, now get these next two words, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, now verse 9, when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. Now let's stop there just a minute. What do we have here? Paul goes to the leaders of Jerusalem. He talks to them privately, lest he runs in vain. He tells them that gospel which he's been preaching. They see it. They perceive the grace that was given to Paul. Now look, when they perceived the grace that was given unto me, verse 9, they gave to me and Barnabas, his helper, the right hands of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, the heathen, the Gentiles, and they out of the circumcision, the nation Israel. Now let me ask you something. Under the Great Commission, who had been sent to the Gentiles? The eleven, hadn't they, or the twelve? Going into all the world, does that include the Gentiles? Go and make disciples of all nations, does that include the Gentiles? That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, and that include the Gentiles? But here was fulfilled what the Lord had said to Peter in this same connection, and to the twelve, whatever ye shall then vow, individually and together, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And right here something was bound and something was loose. What was bound? Paul's apostleship to the Gentiles. They saw it, they perceived it publicly, officially, solemnly. They gave him the right hands of fellowship and agreed, you are now the apostle to the Gentiles and we'll agree to confine our ministry to Israel. So they loosed themselves too, didn't they, from the so-called Great Commission. Now you tell me, what's happened to apostolic succession? What's happened to a successor for Peter? Doesn't matter if he has any. Because now God has chosen another apostle. He's brought in a new dispensation. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, the dispensation of the grace of God. Turn please to 1 Corinthians 3. Now, I have only about 97 different topics to discuss in this way. And we've almost finished one, so don't be a bit concerned about the time. Ephesians 3, verse 10. <clears throat> Here he says, this is Paul now, according to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise or an instructed master builder, I have what? What is the next word? Everybody say it good and loud. I have laid the foundation. He doesn't say, I I'm building on a foundation that somebody else has laid. No, I'm not talking about that Matthew 16 foundation. I have laid the foundation. Doesn't that in itself indicate again that he started something new? I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. And isn't it a sad thing, beloved, that people have gone back and gotten petrine material, the material of the gospel of the kingdom, and built it on the foundation of the gospel of the grace of God? Thank God we build on a foundation of grace. 
And we build on that foundation the teachings that the Apostle of Grace has given us in his epistle. Well, there are a lot of other scriptures, but 1 Corinthians, I beg your pardon, Ephesians 1, 19-23, who's the head of the church? And the head over all things to the church? Christ alone. Christ alone. So that our citizenship is in heaven, and our head is in heaven, and our hope is in heaven, and our prospect is in heaven. Well, when Christ was talking, he was talking about, granted, Christ on earth now, he was talking about a, a new way of life on earth. He was talking about a changed world and how we can have a changed world. People ask me sometimes, if there's a God of love, why does he allow war and trouble and bloodshed and sickness and intrigue and sorrow? That's easy. He sent Christ to bring a different way of life, but they didn't want him. They said, away with this man, give us Barabbas. And even after God raised him from the dead, they didn't want to believe he was alive, though they knew it. But they bit their teeth and fought that truth with all they had in them. And they still stood by their crucifixion of Christ. So you see what has happened to the papacy. There can be no successor to Peter. Because Peter no longer had that office. <laughs> Paul had become the apostle of the new dispensation. And the apostle of the nation. Now, I... Uh, must say this next topic that we discussed was the last topic that Brother Ted, I call him brother, I so hope he's saved, I just don't know. I just don't know. He said he was, he said he was trusting Christ alone, and yet he went on with that math. That's the subject we discussed last. I knew it was going to be hardest, so I saved it. We first went into other things. Finally, I said, listen, Ted, do you think we're to the place we could discuss the sacrifice of the Mass? He said, if you want to, I'll be happy to, but I don't think he was as happy after that trip was over. And I'll tell you why. Not that we had any words about it. Not that there was any strange feelings. Not at all. But I have a feeling that doctrine was too much for him. He went down to... San Antonio, and he's still there. I've talked with him several times, and we've written back and forth. But he went down to San Antonio, and he was very much disgusted with the, disgusted, I should say, with the um, archbishop we have in Chicago. And he said he wanted to get from under his thumb because I'm not subservient to him. I'm direct from Rome, and I don't have to obey him, and he's just a big politician and half a communist. <laughs> That's what he felt about him. But he said, uh, so he was going to San Antonio, but I know that when we got to this subject, and this is the last of about seven that we discussed, I know this really bothered him. Some of the others did, too. Let's look why. <clears throat> now, I suppose you know that the Mass is called the sacrifice of the Mass. This is because they believe that the death of the Lord Jesus is not a once-for-all finished work of redemption. They believe in the perpetual sacrifice, which began not at the cross, it began at the upper room, when Christ said, this is my blood, and they all, how they hold on to that is. We've got a, several places in the Bible, this, this mountain is Hagar. Now, how could that mountain be Hagar? Of course, it means it represents Hagar. And we believe this represents my blood. But Rome hangs on to that. This is my blood and this is my body. And they say that's where he first began to pay the sacrifice for sin. And then, of course, it was mainly so at the cross. But even today, Christ is still suffering, still suffering to pay for sin. Now let me read you again from the Catholic Dictionary. Here's what they say about this continuing sacrifice. The species, that is the appearance and the smell and the taste uh, of the bread and wine alone remain. The matter, get this, the matter and the form of the bread and wine cease to be. In the sacrament of the Eucharist, same thing, that's the Lord's Supper, only they have the Mass. 
in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the body and blood, together with his soul and divinity, the whole Christ, are contained truly, really, and substantially. Now I said, Ted, this is awfully hard for a thinking believer in the Bible to accept. We were made in the image of God. And part of that uh, way in which we were created is that we have a mind. And we can purpose and plan and so on. And now you ask me with this mind that God has given me to believe that that now is actually the blood of Christ? <laughs> I look at it and I say, doesn't look like it. It's a different color. I better be careful here, but it doesn't smell like it. I could take it to the laboratory and they examine it. They say, no, that's wine. But no, the church says, but it's blood. It's his blood. It's actually his blood. It's the substance of it. It is really so. They call that the doctrine of the real presence. He's really there in that blood. It's the doctrine of the real presence. He's really there in that blood. It's blood. It just looks like wine. It smells like wine. It tastes like wine. But it is blood. He said, well, I know. But you see, the church says that's a mystery. And there he left the door wide open, didn't he? Because I had a chance to show him what the mysteries of the Bible are. Daniel came with some. He says, the God of heaven revealed secrets. What do you mean? Things that hadn't been known before. Christ came, he talked about the mysteries, the secrets, the word is really secret, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What were they? Something hard to believe or something mysterious? No, no, no. They were things that had not been known before. Just one verse, please. Romans 16, 25. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now... To him, now this is Paul speaking to you, my friend, and to me. Now to him that is the power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, now go on, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. Get it? So I tried to show him that the you can't just make us believe something that's impossible for a sane mind to accept by saying, well, it's a mystery. That would be blind faith indeed. Uh, and I tried to show him how you have miracles in the Bible, many of them. But every last one of these miracles are supernatural. None of them are contra-natural. None of them are against nature. And you know what he mentioned? I've heard that done before, and I wouldn't have thought he to come up with it. But he mentioned about those lean kine, the lean cows that ate the fat cows, and they stayed just as lean as they were before. I said, Ted, that was a dream. That's a dream that the king had and was interpreted for it. That didn't really happen. The Bible wouldn't tell that kind of miracle. So you do find them in the Apocrypha, but not in the 66 books of the word of God. So then I took him to Hebrews 7 and here's where dear Ted, he said again and again, I've never been challenged this way before. He said, I must admit, we, I was in the monastery and uh, they taught us Roman Catholic doctrine and then gave us some scriptures to show their doctrine was correct, but we never really studied the Bible. Never. Now listen to this. I'm sure he was quite taken by these verses, and I think they deeply impressed him. Verse 26 of Hebrews 7. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. I wonder how many popes that could be said of. 
they themselves at their inauguration have to acknowledge that they are poor sinners and unworthy in the sight of God, but not this high priest. Now, verse 27, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once when he offered up himself. Nobody offered him up. He offered up himself. Look, please, at Hebrews 9 now, verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, that is, by, in virtue of his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Now get this. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. How do you like that? There is a glorious, all-sufficient, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and mine. I said, don't you see, Ted, that means that once, just one time, once and for all, he completely paid for the sins of mankind and entered into the holiest in virtue of his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Chapter 9, please, again, verse 24. <clears throat> for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often. That's what the priests are doing. He didn't even offer himself often. How can they offer him often? Under the message before, they had men giving him up in sacrifice. Peter says, you took him and with wicked hands you crucified him and slew him. Never in Paul's epistle. He's always making the offering. He's the one. He came to do it and he did it and he finished it and it's done. Nor yet that he, had offer him, he should offer himself often as a high priest entereth in the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have suffered often since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world, that is, at the end of the ages, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Just one more a little passage here, if you will. The uh, 19th and 20th verses. And it so happened that his version had it, seems to me, in this case, I'm very slow to change the authorize. I'm certainly like Russ Miller in that. I'm not like him in everything. I don't have that pretty baby. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, here, the, word, the second word by is not in either Stephen's or, or Nestle's text. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, which is consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Oh, how wonderful. Then you know that. That's Hebrews 2. These priests stand daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which could never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? These, priests, these Old Testament priests were in the tabernacle. There was a table there with bread. There was a candlestick or a lampstand with light. There was an altar for a sacrifice but no chairs, nothing to sit down on. 
Why? Well, this tells us their work was never done. Again and again and again, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. There they came, and it was never done. But here came Christ, and he finished the work, and he sat down. Why? Because the work was done. And how does that go? Is that 10, uh, I want you to enter into his rest, seeing that Christ has finished his work and has sat down. Now enter into his rest and sit down too. You, that's entering the heavenlies, you see. He, the work is done. It's, he sees you already in heaven. Sit down too and enjoy that rest. Oh, there's so much, so much to say. I have only 95 left now, don't I, out of the 97. But I'm just going to going to mention one or two other things. What about Mariolatry? What about the worship of Mary? Now, this is interesting. I'm not going to read it all to you, but in 1854, the uh, doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was pronounced as sound doctrine that has to be believed by the Roman Catholic Church. That doctrine of immaculate conception has not to do with the birth of Christ, but with the birth of Mary, the mother of Christ. She was born, she was conceived without the least taint of sin upon her. David says, I was conceived in sin and born in iniquity. But not Mary, the mother of Jesus, says the Roman Church. She was not a sinner. She was conceived and born without the least taint of sin. In 1931, they had gotten so far that she was pronounced, now get this, the mother of God. And that phrase is often used in the Roman Catholic Church today. Mary, is the, God has a mother now? You can't say in the beginning, God, God had a mother. <laughs> in the beginning, God, no. Here's the mother of God, and she can prevail upon him. You see, because she has a mother's influence, even the mother's authority over a child. And so in 1950, that's in our lifetime, most of us, the decree was passed that it was now heresy uh, to be doubted on pain of hell to deny, I beg your pardon, I'm getting out of myself, it was heresy to deny that Mary bodily ascended to heaven. Ascended to heaven bodily. Think of it. Now just think that through a minute. Uh, how can Mary be, and on account of this, they call her the co-redemptress and uh, a mediatrix. What does 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 7 say? There's one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. One. There can be no other. And how could she be a co-redemptress when she didn't pay the price of redemption? Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. How can she be a co-redemptress when her blood was not shed for sin, not either actually or what they might say by a miracle in a cup. Not at all, if they call her a co-redemptress. But let's see what she says about it. Please look at uh, the first chapter of Luke, and I'm very soon finished now. Very soon finished. Luke 1, 46 and 47. And Mary said, now this is when Christ had been born, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Immaculate conception? God my Savior, and I rejoice in it. She did just what you and I are doing tonight. She rejoiced that she had a Savior, a Savior from sin. Let's look at Acts 1, please. And verse 14. Acts 1, verse 14. Now look at this. 
Verse 13, when they were come in, they went into an upper room where abode Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and so on. Now, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman, with the women, excepting Mary. They prayed to Mary. Do you see that there? No, you don't. They prayed with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary on her knees, just like all the rest. They're all praying. So how can we think of prayers to Mary as a co-redemptress and a mediatrix? That's an impossibility, according to the word itself. I'm not going to go into the others except just to mention one, and that is the priesthood and absolution. John 20. You know where the idea comes of the priest absolving the sinner from sin, I believe. I hadn't thought of it till this minute, but I believe I have right here in my wallet a little something about Jack Kennedy. You know Jack President Jack Kennedy was shot and killed. They had a priest there almost immediately to say the last rite. Now here's what he said. Then the final blessing, quote, by the faculty given to me by the apostolic see, that's the Pope, I grant to you a plenary, full, complete indulgence and the remission of all your sins. And I bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Can you tell me why they're still saying masses for Jack Kennedy to get him out of purgatory? According to this, he should already be in heaven, shouldn't he? All his sins are forgiven. And yet he's in purgatory, dying the death of hell, only it's temporary. It's just as bad as hell, only it's temporary. The agonies are just as, just as terrible and horrible. Well, I thought all his sins were forgiven. You know the answer to that? I'll tell you what the answer is, and I've heard this again and again and again and again and again as a city missionary. But I'll tell you what was said to my wife. My wife's brother died in World War I, and the priest hurried to their home and said, Your son has gone to glory. That is, to her mother. The church has granted plenary indulgence to all the boys that die in the service. He's gone right to heaven, and they were so glad. Nevertheless, they did keep saying masses. And my wife said to her mother, Mother, if John is in heaven, why do we keep saying masses? She said, Etta, don't you ever question the priest. Now, they're beginning to question the priest a little today. But still, that was the attitude. Don't ever question it. Now, the reason for this is because masses and the absolution that goes with them are sold. That's right. It's very true. No uh, high money, high mass. Low money, low mass. No money, no mass. Any of my dear Roman Catholic friends here know that that's the truth. How I remember so well Father Chianti in Patterson, New Jersey. And we had a poor mother's class. We'd give them the clothing and help them sew it for their children and help the boys with raffi and reed work and so on. And uh, how often this happened, I was only a long three or four times, but I was there to witness it. A woman comes and says, Mr. Sam, the father won't bury my husband, that is, he won't say the mass, the burial, unless I give him $75. And in those days, that was big money, especially for a poor person. I said, well, I'll go and talk to him with you. I said, well, let's go together. So they'd go together. And Dad would say, now, father, and he did use that word just by way of accommodation. Father, $75 for this poor woman? Surely you can charge her less than that. No, I, I don't set those fees. The church sets them. 
Well, if it were me, I'd say I'll charge her a little of it, and I'll pay the rest. Surely you can... Seventy-five dollars a lot of money for this poor woman. But he'd say, no, no, they'd have to stand by there, hold that line, you know. Then Dad, oh, that was a game he played, really, cat and mouse. He'd say, all right, young lady, you come with me. I'll take care of your funeral for you. I'll preach the funeral service and everything. <laughs> and he'd take the, take the service away from Father Chianti. And this happened many a time. He had a funeral that Father Chianti could have had, but that $75 was too much. But do you see why people whose children are supposed to be in heaven are still paying masses? Can you think of any other reason? If they're gloriously in heaven, I wouldn't pay $75. I wouldn't pay two fifty for a mass, would you, brother, to get my dear wife out of purgatory? Because I know very well she's not there. She departed to be with Christ. But you see, they get this, and this is what they hold over the people from that one segment of the Great Commission that the Protestants never want to use. How they keep away from that one? John 20, here we are, uh, 21, uh, 22. Then said Jesus again to his disciples, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. That's a great commission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted out of them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. I don't know how many Protestant Bible teachers and ministers I have heard explain that. You know why? We used to have them at our home. Ironside, Gabeline, Newell, Philpott, and all of these men and dad are almost always asking this question because it involved the Great Commission. And they say, well, it means that by what they preached and as the people believed that their sins were forgiven. But he said, but it doesn't say that. It says, whosoever sins ye remit, they're remitted. And beloved, let's remember this. Rather wait for light than make a verse mean anything. The Roman Catholic argument is always strong when they come back and say, but wait, but this is what it says. And the poor Protestants who are also trying to work under Peter in the Great Commission don't know how to answer that one. Now, there is something about repentance and baptism that I think many Christians, many fine, great Christians, don't quite understand. <clears throat> From Mark 1-4 with John the Baptist all the way through Pentecost, the terms were repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. Isn't that right? All right. But most people think that repentance and baptism were just two things in the same in the same category. They're not. I think I can point that out very easily. Who did the repenting? Peter or his audience? His audience. Who did the baptize? The audience or Peter? Peter, right? And those who were there with him. So, the point is, they had to repent honestly and truly. And then, the apostles, or whoever the individual at the time and place were in authority, they baptized them for the remission of sins. That's why it's called the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, we know the water can't wash away sin, but I know, too, that they couldn't get their sins washed away unless they accepted that ceremony because that's God said do this and faith would do it and the Pharisees and scribes rejected the counsel of God themselves being not baptized and they showed they were not believers the only way they could show they were believers was by doing what God said and he said be baptized for the remission of sins and he said to the apostles you baptize them for the remission of sins somebody says and I've asked this before do you mean then that a he would give the remission of sins into the hands of failing Christians? No, not failing ones. Didn't you read what Acts 2.4 says? How many of them were filled with the Holy Spirit? How many? All. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There was nothing one man was more spiritual than another. One man had prayed through more earnestly than another. One lived a more godly life than it. No, it was because the day of Pentecost had fully come. The day of prophecy was here. This was the time, and the Holy Spirit came, and they were all 
filled with the Holy Spirit and you can't find a mistake, much less a sin or a blunder in the early, those earliest chapters of Acts. But you remember what happened? When that kingdom was rejected, not only did the apostles lose that position as we just saw, but they were no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to ask you something, but don't you raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. I wonder how many here have been filled with the Holy Spirit, ever. Ever. Raise your hand. No, no, don't you do it. What about uh, Paul's churches? Now, Peter's church at Jerusalem, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What about Paul's church? Galatians? He should bite and devour one another. Be careful you don't consume each other. The Corinthians? And you are puffed up, and he mentions some of their terrible sins. The Colossians, they allowed the Gnostic heresy to come among them. The Philippians, Euodius and Syntyche, well, oh, here had a nice name, but Syntyche was soon touchy, and uh, I forget who Euodius was, but he had two good sound-alike names for them. But they had a quarrel, and sides were being taken. None of his churches were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, we rather have what we have in regard to many other things now. Be filled with all goodness. Anybody here filled with that? That's what Paul says. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. Anybody filled with that? If so, why have these Bible conferences? He says, be filled with a lot of things. And he says, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. This is now a challenge. This is a... a what shall I say, uh, the, the, the highest for which we, by grace, through faith, strive. There's much more. We could have gone into uh, the Bible versus the church and confession and the canonization of saints, prayer to saints, prayer to saints and angels, purgatory, idolatry, the worship of relics and such things. And... Uh, Lord, we in a great deal more, and we discussed a great deal more, but don't you see how this is answered by the Word of God and it's answered dispensationally? A change in dispensation has come in addition to the things that aren't according to Scripture at all. God has left that dispensation behind, and we are now in the dispensation of the grace of God. Oh, I hope, I wonder if there's anybody not saved here. Oh, don't go out of this place unsaved. You don't have to do anything. This is the dispensation of grace. God says, I want to give it to you. Will you take it? The, the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God. He's not a kind of a giver that says, like the man who came to my screen door one time and said, I got a, I've got a, a gift for you. In fact, full of gifts. I said, how nice. He said, now we've got Cosmopolitan here. And another magazine, and there's a third one, there's a fourth one. I said, thank you very much, and I started to close the door, because I knew what he was going to say. He said, now to keep them, oh, I said, wait a minute, you said they're a gift. Thank you, I'm very busy today. And I thought maybe he'll be a little different with the next guy, <laughs> you see. He had said it was a gift, that was no gift. He was selling a fib there, and that's the way they do sometimes to sell things. But this is a gift, a gift that you just wanted. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of, in fact, the, the word free is in there, the free gift of God. That's the kind of word that word gift is. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just accept it. Say, yes, Lord, I believe this. This sounds wonderful to me. And you've said it in your word, I believe it, I'll accept it. A woman came with her husband one time to a big Saturday evening evangelistic meeting hoping that this time her husband would go forward. He had again and again given evidence that he was under conviction of sin and he wanted to be saved. He thought, maybe this time he'll go forward. After the service, the invitation was given, won't you come, won't you come, come and show that you've placed your faith in Christ. The man didn't go forward. <clears throat> On their way home, the woman said to him, George, why didn't you go forward tonight? He said, I don't know, dear. I was just glued to that seat. I wanted to go, but I just couldn't. And of course, many people 
coming forward publicly like that, that scares them to death almost. But you see, we're not saved by courage. We're saved by grace. But in many meetings, you'd think it was by courage, wouldn't you? And they almost make it courage when they say, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. Another verse taken out of context. But he wants to save you. If you're not saved, my dear friend, he loves you. He truly does. And he wants you to be his. And all you've got to say is, this is great. I believe it. I, I, I'll, just, I'll just live according to that. I believe God loves me. I believe Christ died for me and that the work is all done. What a wonderful thing. I never cease to thank God for the day I was saved. Never from that day to this have I once doubted my salvation. Doubt a lot of other things, but never that. Not because I'm so good, but because he's been so good to me. Thank you, brother.